Ninth. Can you hear me now? Awesome. Hey, Scott, can you hear me okay? Yeah, that sounds much better. Awesome. Okay, now I can hear you too. Good deal. Good deal. Okay. Uh, well, uh, okay, I wanted to uh, start by first doing a uh, mic check and then um, kind of make sure it sounds okay. Uh, usually I'm in the studio back in Phoenix, but uh, I'm here in rural Florida and I had to get all the way to a Starbucks kind of in the middle of nowhere here to kind of record this thing. And I leave. So. Okay, no problem. I want to start uh, off there. Um, so if you could give me a first and last name and then a mic check, one, two, one, two would be fantastic while I'm adjusting here. Sure. Scott Christensen, mic check, one, two, one, two. Hello to Scott in my normal tone of voice, speaking to you over the telephone. Good deal. Sounds good. Sounds good. Awesome. All right, well, uh, I will uh, count us here in a little bit, uh, but first I will tell you about the podcast. How about that? Sure, that sounds uh, great. Well, awesome, awesome. Uh, well, you know, this is the business uh, podcast here. Um, and, uh, you know, I first kind of go into uh, you yourself and kind of give a background on um, yourself. Um, I leave it very open-ended so that you can talk about yourself as much as you want tell guests that uh, quite a few people listen. Um, I do a lot of business um, with uh, some major athletes uh, as okay. well as some uh, pretty fortune, pretty high up uh, Fortune 100 guys. So uh, be aware uh, that they will catch lies or look you up and things like that. You don't seem to like a guy I have to tell that to, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of young people have to uh, let them know. So uh, they will look into you, good or bad, which is the internet, you know how that goes. Yep. Um, I also say when we go into uh, your background, I try to tell um, people to give as much as they want. Um, if you want to tell everybody, you know, I'll ask where you're from. If you want to tell them about your high school days, or elementary <laughs> days, um, I kind of like to build up your backstory, uh, maybe through high school, through college, through, you know, maybe your first few jobs into kind of what you've settled into today uh, or into your ventures you are in now and then kind of go from there into what you're into now and we will touch a little bit of everything you are a very intelligent guy from what i've read and uh, seen and so um the people that uh, listen to this podcast are pretty smart themselves and they want to hear your opinion on blockchain and iot um all the way to things like the supply chain uh and anything future related um, okay i'm a big future futurist myself uh, i've managed to get close to mr musk through some of my predictions and things I like to talk about. So he loves when I talk about that stuff. I love to make him happy because I'm getting ready to do business with him. So if you if you uh, want to um, show off your skills in advising or talk a little bit and show off your brains, this is the perfect platform to do so. And predictions and, you know, doomsday type futuristic stuff is always welcome on this platform. Okay, uh, I, I try to keep uh, optimistic, but there's always negative consequences to a lot of these technologies. So. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's very lighthearted, very fun. Uh, feel free to ramble. Um, the floor is always yours. Uh, and again, I like to answer or ask questions open-ended, so it gives you plenty of room to, you know, ramble and talk as much as you want. So feel sure. free. Sure. Yeah, I actually, I had um, one of my students is an NFL player, a former NFL player. I guess he's fixing to retire. And um, he actually guest lectured in my class talking about NFTs and, and uh, nice. Bitcoin because uh, he uh, made some headlines when he said he was going to accept his um, salary in, uh, 
in Bitcoin. So very nice. That's awesome. That's very awesome. I, I, that's good to hear. Well, if you uh, want to touch into that, I'd love to touch into that too as well. I see you've got some background in Bitcoin and blockchain. So yeah, let's do it. Sounds good. Awesome. 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 Okay. Well, I will, um, I'll, you know what, let's do a, one more mic check. You kind of got low as you were talking a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're on a headset or you're on the phone or if you want, I could resend the link to an email, whatever you feel more comfortable with. I want to make sure everybody can hear you. Okay. Um, this might be the best um, connection I am going to get, but I'll try to, maybe I was turning my head or something. Let me see if I can uh, maybe make sure I'm in a place where the uh, headphone won't change very much or anything like that. So this is Scott talking in a normal tone of voice. Okay. Good. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, you ready? Scott? I'm I'm ready. And I call you Michael? Uh, Michael, uh, Mike, uh, either or is fine. Okay, sounds great. Whatever you prefer. Awesome, awesome. Okay. All righty, well, I will uh, count us in here. Uh, let's see here. All right, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, you guys, this is Mike. This is the Give You the Business Podcast, and I am back with a very, very special guest today. Uh, he is a really smart guy. I really hope you guys enjoy the conversation we have today and get to know him. Uh, and I am ecstatic he is willing to join me. He's a very busy guy, so I'm, I'm extremely happy he's here to talk to me and uh, share this conversation with you guys. Uh, Scott, can you hear me okay? Is everything all right? I can hear you great, Michael. You hear me all right? Awesome, awesome. Yes, absolutely. And fans, we are remote. Um, as my fans know, I'm still in Florida. Uh, and Scott is uh, based out of Missouri. Yep, sure am. Right in the central part of the state in Columbia, Missouri. Awesome, awesome. Okay, good deal. So I'm hoping everybody can hear us okay. I hope I don't have too much uh, background noise going on here. Feel free, Scott, to yell at me and I'll move around. If okay, sounds good. I think I lost you there. Yeah, I definitely lost you there. Hey, Scott, can you hear me okay? Can I, can, I can hear you now. Awesome. Okay. Okay, let me move. Let me move really quick here. I can edit all this too as well. Okay. Let me move one, one more spot. Okay. So, does this sound better? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, that sounds more consistent. Awesome, awesome. Okay. Um, awesome. Okay. Okay, let's uh, get back into it here, and I'll edit in. I'll count in here. Uh, five, four, three, two, one. All right, so Scott, you want to go ahead and uh, start this off by giving a little bit about yourself and about your background? Sure, I am uh, have a little bit of an eclectic background. I got a degree in biology back in the early 90s, and then I took a job as an undergraduate uh, after I had uh, 
I graduated uh, with that undergraduate degree and found that I was working in a lab with a bunch of rats and radioactive chemicals. And I remember the guy next to me on the lab bench got his 30 years of service pin. And I thought, I got to get the hell out of here before this becomes a career. And so I started doing some work with some area schools that were doing video conferencing. And this was a big deal back in 93. Uh, it required a lot of big setup and these things called T1 lines. And uh, we were able to connect rural schools to each other so that they could share courses, so that they could share teachers and uh, be able to increase the educational opportunity uh, across these rural schools. And it was pretty cool at this time. And as nice. you can imagine, that was before we had the internet. That was before we had Zoom or <laughs> anything like that. And so it was uh, really cutting edge technology. And so I started to get involved in that field. And at the time, it was a very small field of people uh, across the United States that were involved in it. And I got to be known as someone that uh, knew what they were doing. And so eventually I started to get calls from people saying, hey, will you consult with us on this? And I would consult with them and tell them what to buy. And eventually they said, well, we'd like to just buy the stuff from you. We don't want you to you know, tell us what to go buy elsewhere. Why don't you just do the whole thing? So I started selling products and formed my own business, uh, Kaleidoscope Video Conferencing. And so I did that for quite a number of years. And then I started uh, doing a little bit of teaching in the area of project management because I've gotten really good at project management, taught myself how to manage projects, big and small, and was invited to come teach here at the university. And round about, oh, after, I'd say, 2000. 12, 2013, I was doing a lot of teaching here at the university and I realized, boy, this is just tying me down too much. You know, I got to be here in town to teach these students and I'm just going to quit. I'm going to go ahead and just quit this. I'm going to work on my business full time. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I was working full time, as you know, as a, someone that's entrepreneurial, uh, when you run a small business, it's great because you can set your own hours. You get to work any 80 hours a week you want. And uh, that's exactly what I was doing, but I had to be in town for these classes. Well, when I told them that I was going to quit doing it, they said, wait a second, um, you have some unique skills. We don't have anybody that can teach like this. We don't have people that like to teach these practical applications. Uh, why don't you come teachers full time? And at the time, I was pretty tired of, you know, life on the road. Life on the road is kind of fun when you're in your 20s, but it's not so fun when you start to be in your 40s and 50s. And so I transitioned to teaching full time. And so I'm a little bit of an oddball in that I don't have a Ph.D., but I uh, am a teaching professor here at the University of Missouri, a big research university, and I have a fantastic job. I get to teach students about emerging technologies and geek out with them about blockchain and AI and NFTs and all sorts of uh, weird stuff. And the rest of the faculty just kind of leave me alone. <laughs> so I really uh, enjoy that. And so that's what I do today. And I also do a lot of um, outreach and writing and, and trying to think about what's the future going to be like and how do we shape the future into something that's, that's going to be desirable. Awesome, Scott. Well, it seems like you have a uh, really good background there, but I wanted to circle back to uh, your first company there, Kaleidoscope. Uh, was that uh, kind of your first business venture that you did? Yeah, that was my first uh, business venture. I didn't have much experience in business, but I knew I really loved working on projects, and I had some faith that I would 
make it work out. And uh, I was actually working a, a full-time job at a college and was uh, about to turn down a number of these consulting jobs and yeah. was driving up there one morning and realized I'll make more off those jobs than I'm going to make off this uh, <laughs> salaried position during the entire year. And so yeah. by, by 10 a.m., I had turned in my resignation and I had so much overtime that I had uh, put in that I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a month, but that really means I'm here for like the next four days. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, so they had kind of taken advantage of me and, and I, it was kind of coming to that realization and that was how I started my business. And so luckily we had some friends that referred me to the right people and those people helped us figure out the accounting and the, um, where to uh, set up an office and all that kind of good stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, do you have any advice for any young consultants out there? I know I've done some consulting and advising myself and trying to work, you know, work my way from a 40 hour position. Uh, and there's quite a few young people that listen that do advising and stuff like that as well. Do you have any advice for them and kind of getting started and maybe some of the things you went through for landing at uh, Mizzou? Uh, yeah, consulting is, is, is difficult, but as far as um, uh, people that are just getting started, like with their business, is really learning yeah. about how to identify your customer. And that was a big uh, problem that we had early on, because especially when we moved to product sales, we're thinking, oh, well, we're selling a technical thing. The technical people are our customers. Well, it took a little yeah. while for us to realize, uh, no, it's the uh, executives in the business that don't want to have to travel. And so they want the video conferencing system to make themselves more efficient. And it's, it's not uh, like selling a computer or a server or some other piece of network gear that you're going to talk with all the tech guys down in the server room. This is really about uh, providing a solution to their problem and understanding what their problems are and uh, fitting the right solution to that, or just saying, well, we don't have a solution for that. We actually had a, a really good um, reputation in town as uh, a company that was going to uh, uh, do right by the customers, and that carried us through various recessions and, and uh, the dot-com bust. You know, I started my company right before uh, everything kind of went south in the late 90s. And uh, having that kind of high service reputation, high touch reputation really uh, uh, paid off for us. Now, how'd you go about kind of putting your company of advisors kind of together? Were you solo in that venture or did you go out and find friends or, you know, old work buddies? Um, it probably would have been a lot smarter if I had done that. And um, <laughs> looking back on it, I can see the mistakes I made of not understanding debt and how to grow. Uh, but yeah. I was, you know, I was a guy with a biology degree. I didn't know anything about business. I just uh, figured I would figure it out so that I could do these uh, interesting projects that were in front of me. And that's uh, really was my goal was to make enough to live on and to save up so we could be comfortable, but really to work on interesting projects. And so that was my, uh, my uh, driving uh, force behind those uh, uh, those businesses. And, and so we actually went in several different directions where the interesting projects were. And if I was designing that as a business just to make money, I wouldn't have been uh, kind of so over, uh, you know, uh, moving around to different areas so often. But it was now, very interesting. It was, a, it was a really exciting time in the 90s. It's, it's really hard to explain now because 
Um, You could have a business and where you did um, Novell networking, Windows 3.1, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And you could understand 90% of what was out there uh, as far as computer networks. Well, after the late 90s and 2000s, then it became really specialized. So you weren't just selling a firewall and selling the server and selling this. You now had to specialize. Are we just going to do this one particular area? And so it was difficult as a small uh, company to really do everything. And so that's why we concentrate on video conferencing, because it's a really nice niche, because you had to know audio and visual stuff, and you had to know networking. And there were companies that did networking, and there were companies that did audiovisual, but there are very few that did both. And we really focused in on that one kind of overlap. If you think about the Venn diagram of those two specialties, uh, we were able to focus in on that overlap and uh, develop a really good niche for ourselves. Now, um, I know I you know, have an accounting background, um, and I carried a book of clients and did project work uh, for years. And that's kind of what I was taught through mentors and a godparent of mine um, until I finally got into government accounting work where I was working 40 to 60 hours a week. I hated my job. You know, I talked to, you know, the directors and the mayors about it, and they tried to put me into a project-style position. And eventually, I ended up leaving because boring it wasn't fulfilling right i wanted to work on different projects every day it's something i always did when i was younger mm-hmm. you know did you have that same fire for projects when you were younger or is that something you kind of found later after the biology uh job that you had had no i i really enjoyed having different projects all the time and in fact i got my biology degree by working in a lab where yeah. uh, I was given a lot of freedom to s- pursue different projects. Uh, and that was, uh, I thought that was the way it was going to be for everything in biology, uh, but it turned out that was just an abnormality. I had this really special professor <laughs> that would let undergraduates do their own research and he'd help them write it up and get it published in journals and stuff too. So um, that was a, a pretty uh, amazing opportunity, but um, yeah, I discovered early on that I really liked working on different projects, and I consider classes to be like different projects now. Yeah, can you can you recall any projects that you remember wanting to do or did do in your youth at all? Um, well, I got halfway through building a hovercraft when I was uh, in high school. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I had the frame and everything built and all this foam stuff. And I got a snowmobile motor that I was going to put on the back. And you actually could get plans for these. And um, that ended up being just a little bit beyond my uh, abilities to both uh, uh, engineer and to fund. (laughs) (laughs) Never looked back either. Oh, you haven't built any hovercraft since? No, no, I uh, have, uh, uh, I, ha- I have not, but I would, uh, maybe when I retire. Nice, very nice. Let's uh, fast forward here to now uh, your time at Mizzou. You've uh, done quite a bit there. It seems like you've had quite an impact. Um, is there, how did you end up getting uh, started with that? I know you went on to do that work after consulting and advising um, and kind of settled into this full-time position. How did you go about kind of settling in there? Well, um, it was, it's been very interesting because I get to teach both graduate level courses 
as well as undergraduate courses. So I teach a very large lecture class. can vary anywhere from 500 to 700 students. And in that uh, lecture class, we will uh, explore basically what's the future, but we explore it in the context of business and technology. So we'll talk about uh, databases, but then we'll also talk about blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and, and how they're related to databases. You know, this is a different way to look at storing information and what is the advantages of doing it the traditional way in a database or encrypted database and what are the advantages of doing it in a blockchain and, and when would you choose one over the other? So it's uh, a lot of fun. You know, we talk about programming and large enterprise systems, but then we talk about artificial intelligence. How can you take all that uh, data and that metadata that's out there and how can you use that and train an AI? And we actually do that in class. Uh, people wow. get their cell phones out and we uh, collect uh, some data from them about uh, their movements and we're able to uh, train uh, an AI there in class to detect uh, um, what they're doing with their phones. So, uh, you know, how they're moving it. They're moving in a circle or are they wow. waving it. So uh, try to bring a lot of stuff in like that. So that's a really fun class to teach. And then um, I also teach another class at the graduate level uh, that is exploring different topics. We call it exploring the digital globe. So uh, we do things such as one week we look at VR and AR. And so we go over to a VR and AR lab and uh, not just play with the technology. So we do a lot of that, you know, playing with the technology, which is always fun. But then we talk about yeah. how researchers use uh, VR and AR. So, for example, in, in healthcare, um, we have a company here in town that uh, is called Helium. And it's H-E-A-L-I-U-M, like uh, heal, Absolutely. like you would heal. And oh, they... Yeah they have been using um, these brainwave monitors to uh, monitor your brain and how, you know, upset you are or how stressed out you are. And then yep. through AR and VR, they have this way to kind of almost like guided meditation, but they're finding that it's much more effective um, wow. for people that have PTSD or that have been through a traumatic um, uh, problem or, even athletes. So they're working with athletes that uh, are trying to uh, overcome the fact that they just screwed up on a play, right? So uh, a yeah. lot of athletes tell me that that's a big problem that, you know, you're just thinking about, oh my God, am I going to, am I going to do that again? Am I going to do that again? So it's uh, even on the sidelines, you might be able to uh, put this on for three minutes and kind of calm yourself, get yourself back to a, you know, a place mm. uh, uh, where that you can uh, think clearly again. And so they, they've had, yeah, they've had lots of different interesting markets for it. Uh, so that's just one week that uh, we have, uh, we're lucky enough to have that company here in town. They come and talk as well. And then um, we do another one. We did another week where we had a guy that was uh, fascinating, where he was looking at arbitraging the energy markets. So how do you store energy at night when it's cheap? Uh, and in fact, you can sometimes get uh, the energy grid will actually pay you to take energy because um, people aren't using it. And you got these wind farms up in Iowa that are producing all this excess energy. And so you yeah. can pull in energy cheaply 
And what you might do is you might chill a huge, huge tank of water that sits outside your factory. And then during the day when people come in and your machines are running as hot, you're taking that chilled water and you're bringing that in for your air conditioning. So you're thermally storing the energy. Uh, so there's, uh, so you can do that and you can then um, save millions of dollars uh, on your energy bill. And so that was fascinating. And so in that week, we also required all the students to visit our power plant. We have our own university owned power plant, which provides all the electricity as well as steam and chilled water uh, on campus. And so uh, that's, that's always a blast because we we're walking around a big, uh, uh, you know, energy plant with these big uh, yeah. uh, things burning and all this stuff and hard hats. And, and uh, so that's a, that's a blast to teach. I, I kind of kid the students that instead of call, calling it management 8100 exploring the digital globe, it should be called things Scott thinks are interesting. <laughs> So. <laughs> I like that. I'm sure the students love that too. Right. <laughs> now, now tell me, when was the first time you heard about this new thing called blockchain? What was your first experience with it? Well, let me see. It was probably about in uh, 2015 or so. I'd, I, I had heard about it and I had... Uh, a student that was really into it. I remember his name uh, today, Evan Bluss. And he was uh, telling me that I really should start teaching about this. And so I started looking into it in more detail. I think I'd heard about it beforehand, but I just wasn't really clear on what it was. And what was kind of cool was we had a guest speaker, Andreas Ananopoulos, um, who was not well known at the time, but was traveling around kind of as an evangelist for Bitcoin and for uh, blockchain. And so he actually zoomed into my class and uh, gave a talk on it. And that was when I invested in Bitcoin and uh, started really digging into what the applications were. And it's been great because he's become famous now he's written several books about blockchain yeah. and lightning network and all this kind of stuff and so i still have his cell phone so i uh, texted him last <laughs> year and was like hey can you talk to my class again so he talked to my uh, uh one of my big classes and and uh, they found that that was uh you know pretty fascinating so that's awesome that's awesome and so you know tell me if because you know you're, I consider you kind of a futurist, right? You're, you're great with your predictions. I can tell already too. Can you talk to me about some of the use cases you've managed to kind of come upon or think of yourself, you know, in blockchain for the future and uh, many in the industries from insurance, you know, law, uh, medicine, healthcare, like we've talked about. Um, anything that's come new your way or anything you've thought of? Well, there's a, a lot of different ways that I think these NFTs can be used besides just the digital art that we see. And, you know, that's interesting. You well, um, I think that one of the ways we can start to look at it is through smart contracts, allowing people that generate some intellectual property or idea to even be able to share in that um, revenue if it gets used elsewhere. So let me give you an Absolutely. example Example, I was talking with a, a person this morning who's a lawyer, and he will sometimes write these detailed um, 
reports or analysis for a company. And of course, when he does this, he puts in all this time and he says, well, you have to um, keep this confidential, right? So that, uh, you know, XYZ company, you can't uh, um, take all this information. You're allowed to use it inside, but you cannot then, you know, share it out on the internet. So he was asking, well, what if I created an NFT of this report? And then if they wanted to resell it to one of their vendors or their clients uh, about the state of the industry, that would be fine. Yep. And I would get, you know, 90% of the profit and they would keep 10%. So it would incentivize yep. them to uh, be my dealers, if you will, for this information rather than me trying Absolutely. to find other places to sell this. So I think when we start to look at NFTs as being representations of physical items or perhaps intellectual property that's not um, just a digital file, um, that's where you start to see some interesting light bulbs go off. Like, oh, wait a second. Um, this now changes the nature of uh, my business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you managed to uh, kind of use them yourself? Or have you made any smart contracts uh or, you know, uh, any NFTs yourself? I have not. Um, I've uh, looked at that. Um, and I don't know that I have the uh, use case that I want in mind. I have several students that are, are really into the collectible NFTs and are experimenting yeah. with that area. And um, I think I mentioned to you before we uh, started recording this that I've had some former students that were in the NFL. Sean Culkin um, is a played for the Seahawks, I believe, and then for the Chiefs. Uh, and he uh, is very interested in Bitcoin, but he's just interested in these digital assets because he wants kind of the hardest thing he can find, he, he says. You know, mm -hmm. I want the, the hardest type of asset that I can find. And he thinks that uh, Bitcoin is going to be the hardest type of asset. And he kind of put it uh, pretty succinctly when he was talking about the fact that uh, the risks that athletes put forward, and you think about the risks that artists put forward, right? So, I mean, there's a big yeah. risk in being an artist. There's a big risk in being an athlete. They're both doing something for public consumption, uh, for the, the public to consume. And so you want to participate in uh, that to the maximum extent possible and not have a whole bunch of intermediaries, right? Making all the money, which is unfortunately yep. the way the record industry <laughs> and the gallery owners yep. and the, uh, and the, the, I don't know, the NFL is a cartel, I think, uh, if you were to actually kind of uh, look at it. Uh, but, uh -huh. uh, um, you know, the, the NFL owners and, and stuff like that, um, why not um, have it be more of that money going to the athletes or to the artists or to the uh, people that are generating the songs, right? So I think Absolutely. that's uh, that's very, very interesting to me. Um, how these creative industries can be changed by these smart contracts and being able to bring more power to those creators, whether they're creating a, a play on the field or whether they're creating a, a new song. And so I think that's pretty exciting uh, as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm building something very similar in the music world, uh, lending almost uh, a different type of protocol than an NFT. I'm going to have to tell you about it off mic. And uh, maybe I could be successful. I didn't come talk to your students one day. Oh, that sounds great. I'd love it. <laughs> uh, 
Um, now, so you're an educator. Uh, I come from an educator. My mother was a teacher and uh, elementary school teacher. And she would always come up with these really creative ways and creative sayings, you know, in order to get her point across and get kids to really absorb lessons. Can you think of ways that the VR and AR um, and even the metaverse, which I'm sure you're pretty well versed in now, um, are, can affect the classroom and maybe things that you would like to kind of see happen? Well, I think what you really have to look for is what are you trying to teach with the technology? We have yes. this problem in education. It's been going on ever since I got involved 30 years ago. And that is that sometimes we think technology is a technology like fire. Fire is a yes. wonderful technology. You get a benefit just from being near it. It's light and you get warmth. But if you put an iPad in the classroom, that doesn't magically change your class. Just as ho hosting your class in the metaverse doesn't necessarily change your class. But I think there are some really interesting applications. And there's two that I've been involved with uh, back on a previous platform called Second Life. And so this is about 10 years ago or so. And there was a lot of hype about Second Life at the time. And you had Nike and um, all sorts of companies going online. There were millions of dollars of real estate being traded online. And, and this uh, Linden's was their uh, currency that they had at the time. And... and uh, um, so that was kind of a precursor to what we're talking about now with the metaverse. We didn't have um, the blockchain. We didn't have NFTs and other things that make it more interesting. But I had a professor friend in African-American studies here, and he actually recreated 1920s Harlem in this metaverse. So in the second wow. life. And wow. that's what he was teaching a class on. So he had a perfect application that he would not be able to do um, if he was not teaching in that metaverse. So Absolutely. he could, you know, he can't build that out here on our quadrangle. He can't, you know, build out the, the uh, Harlem of the <laughs> 1920s and talk about what it was like and the vibrant culture and, and everything that was going on and why that changed. Absolutely. And so uh, he had a fantastic application. I also got to work with another doctor and what we were doing uh, was looking at, um, uh, this is an entirely different field. I mean, a medical doctor. We were looking at simulations. So simulating uh, human physiology in these types of metaverse applications. And so what most people probably don't realize is if you had a, have a medical school in your town, they probably have something called a simulation center. And yep, they, will, they will simulate different scenarios. Some of them were, are with these mannequins and some of these mannequins nowadays can like give birth and you can actually yeah. like, give them, uh, give them uh, drugs and stuff like that. And they will react uh, in a way that's appropriate. And they also have simulated patients. So let's say Absolutely. that you were uh, going to be a new med student uh, one of the first things you would do is you would go into the simulation center. You'd walk into the exam room, and there I would be. I would be a paid actor. And at first, the simulation would be very basic. You know, did Michael wash his hands? Did he look me in the face? Did he say, Mr. Christensen, what brings you in here? Is he, you know, practicing these things that we want to become routine? Well, as yep. you get farther along in your medical school ed education, what's going to happen 
is that scenario is going to get more and more complex. So for example, um, you know, maybe in their third year, I you come in, I say, well, I've been, you know, kind of not feeling well, you know, my, my left arm hurts, has this radiating pain down it, and, you know, all these other problems. Well, then you go to put the stethoscope on me. And at that point, I have to give you a card and tell you what you hear, because I can't fake having a bad heart valve, right? So no matter how good of an actor I am, I can't, I can't fake that part. Well, we were looking at you know, doing this in this metaverse. And now we can actually, when that stethoscope hits the uh, appropriate part, like maybe the upper part of the chest, it's going to go kertunk, kertunk, kertunk. You're going to hear that. And then when you go down farther, you're going to hear whatever, you know, uh, noise that would be appropriate for putting a stethoscope on that part of a person that has a heart murmur, has a problem. So you could maybe make something much more high fidelity, make it, um, better experience for the student uh, and let them experience a wide range of scenarios that would take too long to set up in a physical environment. So uh, it would just take too long to train people on that. So that's the other application where I see uh, it being fairly interesting. I think there's some technologies that we need to see developed, such as a I'm almost like an open source standard for what uh, a human human physiological model is so that um, it can be used in your metaverse and my metaverse or just in the uh, uh, with a regular uh, mannequin. So I think uh, there's some efforts underway right now to do that. But yeah, I think there's uh, you have to stop and ask yourself uh, as an educator, um, what is this technology really? Uh, allowing me to do that I can't do otherwise. Um, and if you can answer that question, then you might be onto a really good use case. But too often I'm seeing it that, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's a new thing. You know, it's uh, iPads are out. So we need to teach on iPads. And it's like, well, eh, are we really teaching it in any way that's better? Um, so uh, anyway, that's kind of a, a long, uh, long answer to your uh, question there, Mike. <laughs> And now, when it comes to VR and AR um, and your classroom setting, you know, I really see a future where we could maybe have a mobile classroom where mm -hmm. maybe some of your students could, you know, interact or be in the classroom with, you know, students in Japan or China. Um, what, you know, issues or things do we have to overcome in order for that to be a possibility or for that to, you know, to take place? And do you think that's a reality? Well, I've found that a lot of the obstacles are not technology, but they're more bureaucratic. So Absolutely. a, a lot of our education. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I've been doing a lot of work with folks in South Africa. Well, if I was to do it as, you know, to have them enroll in my courses, well, our tuition here is so much mm -hmm. higher than there, they can't afford it. Right. Yep. So you have to go through all these hoops to basically say, and probably some of it is not entirely kosher with the uh, rules I'm supposed to follow, but basically say, okay, these students are in this course, but they're going to be uh, students of record in South Africa and not in this course per se. Mm. Right. So and I've also been working with colleagues in Ukraine and, and there you're talking about a huge differential. Uh, so yeah. I find that a lot of the problems are with 
institutions like my own trying to be more elite. Okay, so we move up in the rankings if we charge more, if we uh, uh, restrict access to our education to uh, only certain people. And I'm really on the other end of the spectrum philosophically, and I think it aligns really with a lot of, uh, you know, cryptocurrency uh, folks as well that, you know, let's help everybody out. You know, let's let's uh, help the unbanked. Let's help the. uh, uninstitutional unhigher educationized or whatever we want to call it and uh, i I think that if my industry doesn't wake up soon um it's going to be overtaken by some of the things like google certificates um i took the certificate Mm -hmm. program in project management myself and it cost me 80 bucks um (laughs) i would be hard I, i like to think my course is a little bit better um, yeah. <laughs> but I would be hard pressed to argue um, that it's not better that most project management courses are going to be better than what Google offers because it's pretty damn good. And here's the thing about what Google offers: you take their project management certificate course, you pass the assessment at the end. They do peer assessment along the way, and it's good quality. Mm-hmm. You pass it at the end, you get that certificate. Okay, Absolutely. you pass. You pass my course, that's great. Now go out and get 117 other hours of courses and we will give you a degree. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think we got to, you know, kind of pull our head out of the ground here and uh, figure out a way that uh, has micro credentials, that's going to fit people's needs, uh, that's going to reach out to people that are non-traditional learners that, you know, uh, you know, maybe didn't uh, get a chance to go to college because they were helping their family out there driving bus. And now it's time for them to uh, look for a different job. And um, we're like, oh, well, show up here at uh, at 1 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon. Yeah. And they're like, I can't, I can't do that. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that um, uh, I'm hoping the, the pandemic uh, is going to change higher education in big ways. And, and uh, I'm optimistic Absolutely. about the future uh, in that regard. But um, yeah, these institutions, especially the ones like I'm at um, are very rigid in their kind of bureaucracy of all this. So now, as an educator, do you have any solutions for maybe some micro degrees or, you know, anything that makes sense to kind of shrink down? Yeah, I think that's a, a great idea. And I think um, what we need to look at is almost like stackable certificates of some means. Okay. Right. And so uh, or some assessment that is alternative to taking a course. So I've heard numerous cases of people coming in from the army and, you know, they're a nurse in the army. Well, they want to get their degree now. Well, they're making them take like, you know, the entry level nursing classes because they haven't had that yet. And it's like, well, this is ridiculous. You know, here's somebody who was serving on the front lines, knew what they were doing. Maybe they have some gaps. Maybe they have some holes. But, um, you know, let's design something custom for them. And so um, right now, uh, there's just not a mechanism to do that. I think, actually, if you look at it, um, it's not institutions like mine that are innovating. Uh, We have some institutions over at uh, the Kansas City area called Metropolitan Area Community Colleges. So they're community colleges, but what they do is they really try to cater to adult students. 
So they, what they do is they say, okay, well, you're in, um, you're in uh, health science. Okay. We don't know whether you're going to be a a physician assistant or or a nursing assistant or whatever you're going to do, but you're in that area. So we're going to schedule all your courses in the morning. That way you can get childcare, you can get your other job or whatever. Oh, you're going to be in business. Okay. We're going to schedule all your courses uh, between, you know, 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. And so that way uh, you're not telling students, oh, well, show up at 8 a.m. for this course and then show up at 2 p.m. for this course, you know, and then do that on Monday and Wednesday and then on Tuesday and Thursday <laughs> do something different. Um, there's a reason why people don't come back and finish their degrees, right? So uh, yeah, I think actually yeah. those small those smaller institutions are, are doing a much better job uh, of serving the public in that regard. Now, let me give you a scenario since we're in the uh, health field here. One I gave my uh, buddy Charles, um, since we're talking micro degrees uh, in healthcare. Um, say you have one person, you know, John, who, you know, was a really smart guy, went to college, went to traditional medical school, and is now a surgeon, a heart surgeon at age 32 right? And you need heart surgery. And John is option A. And then you have option B, who is Jack, you know, who went the non-traditional route, was a brilliant guy, a whiz, uh, started college at 16, finished early, you know, did a micro degree in healthcare, uh, and did a shorter apprenticeship time, uh, you know, a residency time, and is now a surgeon at the age of 26, Right, started earlier and got done earlier. Who would you rather have surgery by? Like, do you have any issues with getting surgery from a 25 or 26 year old who flew through the process because they were a whiz and went through micro degrees? You know, or do gray hairs matter to you? You know, when you're going to have surgery or in your healthcare field? Um, you know, that's that's interesting um, uh, question. What I would say is if I really had the ability to get the insight would be the processes around, around which operations are conducted. So do they follow checklists? I want the surgeon that's going to follow a checklist to how to open my brain up. Uh, I don't want the guy that says, oh, I know what I'm doing um, and then forgets the step because he's been working for 30 hours. Um, yes. And so there's a great, uh, great book called The Checklist Manifesto. It's a short book. It was uh, written by a doctor out of John Hopkins uh, who was trying to reduce the number of infections that they got after putting in a central line. And so this is a common procedure, and they had a very high infection rate, like 20% of people that got this procedure got infected. Well, they started following... Um, their doctors and nurses around, and they found that a huge percentage of the time they got distracted by something else and forgot a step. So you might put yeah. the cloth over, and I, now I need to scrub with iodine. And oh, you know, this other call came in. I went over there. Okay, now I'm just going to stick it in. Okay, because I thought I had already <laughs> done the iodine part. And yeah. um, so they found that if they just implemented checklists, they could drive this number down to like 5% or something. So they could save a lot of people's lives just by following a procedure. And I think that um, that's what's critical. If I could understand the processes and I had the choice between uh, 
going to a place that had a young guy, but he follows checklists and everybody else follows checklists, um, I would 100% go into that operating room uh, versus no matter if the person had 40 years of experience doing that type of uh, work, but just, you know, knew what he was doing. So um, gotcha. that's what I would uh, say to that. So let's talk a little uh, Bitcoin here or cryptocurrency in general and banking. Uh, what do you see the future of banking being? If you had to choose a coin to, do you have a coin recommendation or one that you kind of see succeeding? And then what do you tend to teach your students about cryptocurrency? Well, um, I really see Ethereum or Cardano as being the uh, future because of the ability to conduct smart contracts. I think Bitcoin is interesting. Um, it's, it is kind of like gold, though. I mean, it kind of sits there, right? You can't yeah. do as many interesting things with it. Uh, I've been really studying this area of central bank digital currencies, which are, I want to make, sure <laughs> make sure everybody understands that they are absolutely not cryptocurrencies they're centralized no. control they are non-transparent to you they uh, yep. you know have other things that are not um uh, common characteristics of uh, um cryptocurrencies but yep. we start to look at some countries that are experimenting with this and yep. probably the one that's the most scary is china where they have China's this absolutely <laughs> so they have this um currency it's called the uh, renminbi so it's it's kind of uh -huh. weird like uh you know we have the dollar and our units of measure are dollars um but they have the renminbi is what they call the currency and then their unit of measure is the the one or uh, and so it's it's a little bit different because like it'd be like water is something and a gallon is a unit of measure so it's uh, but the renminbi is what you call the um actual uh uh, currency itself, but they yeah. have already experimented with airdropping this into people's uh, wallets, uh, yep. and it looks like that's what they're going to want people to use when they come to the Olympics. And yep. uh, so yep. you think about here, we have an authoritarian government that is issuing digital currency. Well, they can view everything you're doing with that currency because it's just like a blockchain yep. they can see what you're doing but when you look at what china has been doing with the social credit score well now you yeah. have the ability to say well you know michael is uh he he just buys good good uh fresh vegetables with his money he always crosses at the crosswalk we see that with his gps as well as with the facial recognition on the cameras he always goes to the right political rallies um, okay, well, Scott, he never goes to the right political rallies. Uh, he spends all his money on beer and cigarettes. Um, we know from the GPS on his phone, he's in the wrong places. Um, when Scott buys uh, some wine, it's going to cost him three times what that bo same bottle of wine will be for Michael. So now we have the ability to change taxation rates, the ability to buy certain things, um, all that kind of stuff can be linked to your place in society or how the government thinks you are performing in society. And so, um, and I think even in Western countries, we need to be uh, pretty cautious about um, 
these digital currencies. I think that in some ways, Western countries are going to use these as an excuse to clamp down on cryptocurrencies. They're going to say, um, oh, well, we, we have the digital dollar. You all don't need that Bitcoin and Ethereum stuff anymore. Um, you know, so I think uh, because, you know, it's just for criminals uh, or something yeah. like that. Um, so that um, that takes us to a weird place. And I'm not the only one that thinks this way. In fact, the Financial Times ran an article about the a gentleman who's the head of GCHQ, which is the British uh, um, NSA, essentially, um, warning about the China and the digital renminbi uh, ahead of the Olympics. So um, yep. this is a, a concern that's out there uh, for a lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I ran into a guy who helped uh, with development of that, uh, of all places on Fiverr, when I was looking for some development help with some of the projects I've got going on. Uh, and we talked quite a bit about that, which I, was interesting. He was on Fiverr. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't Chinese. <laughs> huh. um, yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, but they've managed to really kind of get ahead of this. Um, and I have talked, you know, ad nauseum about our government. I, I came from government work. And when I left, I was introducing blockchain to people who didn't know anything about it. And uh, this was four and a half years ago now. Um, and our government, I think, was a little slow to get on on board here. I think we've had a talent issue and kind of a younger recruiting issue uh, to keep up on new currencies and things like this. Um, do, what do you think uh, ends up happening if you can make any prediction or say so here with, with our digital dollar? Do you think we end up making one ourselves, just kind of adopting one? Or do you have any suggestions? Because, I mean, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess you would say uh, our, our currency that we've got going on right now, cryptocurrency, uh, is, is so transparent, you know, and there's such a unregulated movement behind it. It's hard to see the government kind of getting in front, but uh, could you see anything particularly happening or do you have any suggestions? Yeah, uh, so uh, in the U.S. and in the EU, we have so many entrenched banking interests that they're going to want to yeah. be in the middle of it, okay? So because yeah. if you look at um, central bank digital currencies, they don't have to have a bank. You don't need a banking system. And in fact, no. um, the banks are currently how new money comes into existence. When we got that... Yeah. Uh, stimulus um, uh, checks at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, um, all they did was tell the banks, okay, it's okay to add, you know, this much money to Scott's account and we'll back it up. And uh, uh, that's how that money came into existence. Uh, And so now they could, like I said, just airdrop it directly into my wallet. And in fact, the government could do some interesting things like let it expire after if I don't spend it in a certain amount of time. But I I think that um, we're actually going to be um, really, really slow in the U.S. because the banks want to figure out how can we be in the middle of this. And if you are interested in what's it's actually pretty neat technology that's being developed at Visa. Visa has a lot of tests running right now because yep. they want to be yep. the bank in the middle of it. They want to be the yeah. payment service <laughs> provider sure that's sitting in the middle there. Um, uh-huh. Now, at the same time, I think that we're, what, we're go- what we will see is we will see blockchain being used on the back end to settle transactions because mm-hmm. banks have realized that the SWIFT network is slow. It's vulnerable to all sorts of uh, uh, 
manipulation and, and problems. And uh, it takes, you know, days, if not weeks to settle transactions where you and I could exchange millions of dollars in Bitcoin and it would settle within, you know, minutes uh, and would be relatively low fee compared to the SWIFT network. Uh, I think you're going to see that happening very rapidly that banks are going to because they're not bound by any regulation to use the swift network and so i think they're going to start using uh other ways to settle transactions in fact hsbc bank um and i believe ibm worked on a project where they are now settling bank-to-bank transactions through a blockchain so um that wholesale um digital currencies that's going to um, happen very quickly uh, because it will reduce costs for banks. But retail will not happen in the U.S. If ever, it's going to happen really, really slowly because banks are going to say, um, you know, we don't want something that cuts us out of it, right? Um, yep. And uh, I think, uh, so I think we'll, we'll see it in countries where, uh, well, I, we also see cryptocurrency adoption in uh, countries where they have very unstable monetary systems. And, and one of the things I try and tell my students is you don't really appreciate what it's like having a stable dollar here. I mean, we're getting inflation now and stuff, but it's really not that bad. If you're in Venezuela and you get paid this morning, you should probably buy a toaster with that because the toaster is going to retain the value better than the currency okay. will. <laughs> Definitely. You know, Definitely. now you might Definitely. you might have 500 toasters, but that's probably okay because <laughs> people yep. are gonna, it's like using <laughs> cigarettes in prison or something. It's going to be uh, using toasters <laughs> to get your cab ride or something. But um, so I think other countries will see a lot of um, a development in, and unfortunately, I think um, with the central bank digital currencies, we'll see a you know. Erdogan and, and other dictators starting to look at this as like, oh, I really screwed up my currency. Maybe I can do something like this and I can also, uh, you know, exert more control over people at the same time. So I, I don't I, I don't think the outlook's good on that regard. What do you think about uh, the future of things like uh, Dogecoin, right, with uh, like Mr. Musk behind it and, uh, or even Bitcoin versus Ethereum and Cardano? I mean, I love smart contracts and Ethereum. Cardano's really good too, uh, but then Doge has got the right people behind it, you know, as well as Bitcoin. Do you, what do you think about their future? Um, yeah, Dogecoin, I, I uh, I'm not so keen on. Um, I just think. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I just think it's, uh, you know, it's kind of started as a joke. I'm not sure everything was perfectly thought through here. Um, (laughs) I think uh, Bitcoin is much more likely to become the digital gold. So I think that um, that's a good analogy for it. And that's much more uh, likely to happen. Um, You know, what would be interesting is if you started to have even tokens that are tied to bitcoin so instead of a stable coin that's based on u.s dollar what happens if bitcoin stabilizes and then you have a stable coin that's based on bitcoin Mm -hmm. so um you know there could be some interesting things that happen there that then allow um those assets in bitcoin to be used in smart contracts uh through some sort of stable coin uh, in the uh, Ethereum network or Cordano or something like that. But um, yeah, I, I kind of stay away from the Dogecoin stuff. Um, any of that now, 
with Musk involved in something, uh, you never bet against Elon Musk. Um, I found yeah, <laughs> so, uh, I don't think, absolutely. uh, uh, that's another reason I don't want to, uh, uh, get involved because uh, it seems like the traditional market economics don't apply, uh, uh to, to him nope, and some of the things he does. Up. So, yeah. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, and then uh, now moving away from the cryptocurrency here, I wanted to kind of get your take on deep faking uh, and see kind of what you know about it and where you kind of think this is going. Yeah, so deep fakes are basically a way to create a synthetic version of someone. So, Michael, you have all these great podcasts out there. I could take the audio and, and the video that might be out there, and I could create an electronic representation of you, uh, either as a voice um, sound or as a video. And it's basically an AI doing what AI, AIs do best, and that is they make predictions. So if I type in, uh, uh, what's the frequency, Kenneth, and I want it to say that in Michael's voice, it's going to predict what would Michael sound like if he would just say, what is the frequency, Kenneth? And it would then generate that audio waveform. So um, what's interesting, there's two really bad ways that deepfakes are being used. Um, mm -hmm. One is with financial scams. So being able to intimidate someone's voice. And now I'm having Michael call his friends and family and saying, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here in Florida. I don't know what happened. I just got in a car wreck. Um, I, I need you to send a thousand dollars to this lawyer so that I can get out of jail. I'm going to send, I'm going to give it the phone to him right now. Okay. So these types mm -hmm. of scams could be done by people that could target you as an individual and could even be listening to your show and, and then start to track you through Facebook or something like that. Um, and this has actually been done for tens of millions of dollars have been scammed uh, uh, out of executives um, yeah. uh, from uh, different banks and stuff. So um, that's a big thing. And then the other thing is non-consensual pornography. So basically this is a crime, oh, ag yeah. this is a crime against women uh, where you are taking uh, one woman's likeness and putting that on a pornographic actor or actress, and um, then are putting that out there. Well, for women here in the United States, that is psychologically damaging. You know, we have certain stigmas uh -huh. about sex in women uh, that don't Absolutely. apply to men. And so that's, uh, you know, really a, a crime against them. But uh, some of the cases I've seen in the Middle East are people that do not want to be investigated by women journalists because they're doing something really yeah. bad and they are yeah. creating this non-consensual pornography of a woman yeah. journalist and putting it out there and doxing them at the same time, putting out their address. Well, now you have a threat to life against this person um, yeah. because of the way some of these societies view that. And if they don't know the difference that this is a deep fake, um, then, uh, I mean, it's just very, very disturbing. And, you know, I think there Absolutely. are some, uh, Adobe's actually doing some really neat work on this, uh, mm -hmm. with their, um, video, video and photo editing software to look at yeah. actually generate an NFT, uh, uh, when you create and you, uh, Oh, I forget what it is when you export a video file, but you know, when it sits there and crunches and crunches and finally makes your file for you, um, 
actually generating an NFT at that time, putting in a, um, an entry in the blockchain. So then you can see Absolutely. that, oh, this, this video file is created by Scott. It was created at this time. It's authentic. We know that Scott yep. created it and that someone did not modify it along the way. So, um, so I, I give kudos. I'm not always the biggest fan of Adobe, but I'll give uh, kudos to them for actually looking at how they can use their software to develop some uh, uh, blockchain applications that would help with this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I have a theory here. I think deep faking is really going to be one of the biggest uh, hits to Hollywood. Uh, you know, Hollywood really thrives on drama, a lot of things, right? And a lot of celebrities do. Um, and they rely on, um, you know, bad press is still good press, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in this era where these deep fakes can happen, uh, in this era where millennials like myself and the next generation, you know, get news really quick from social media and the lies are always more entertaining than the truth, well, the millennials don't really go back and check to see if that was a lie. It's like once they've got it, they've made their decision that the information they've got is truthful and there's no double back. It's really always to the next thing or the next, you know, big uh, media hit or the next big whatever that has come, you know? And so uh, perception kind of sticks, even if it's wrong or not true. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, these deep faking and, you know, somebody deep faking, I don't know, a LeBron James being somewhere on a date with someone who's not his wife, uh, can really hurt, right? And I'm glad people are coming up with solutions, but I have a theory that it's really going to hurt Hollywood and maybe even politicians as well, people deep faking Joe Biden or things like that. Uh, do you worry about things like that? Oh, yeah, there's, kind of, uh, there's lots of things involved there. One's called kind of the liar's dividend as well. Uh -huh. So let's yeah, say absolutely. that something comes um, out. Um, I can say, uh, well, no, that's a deep fake, Right. That's a deep fake. And so I can brush it off. And maybe it is an authentic video of me saying something inappropriate. But uh, once again, you're exactly right. We are trained in our minds to take in negative information and to give it um, more weight than positive information. Yeah. And Absolutely. that that probably worked fine when you were out in the bush and you saw that, oh, Joe got eaten by a lion and Mary got eaten by a lion. I think lions are bad, you know, despite, mm -hmm. you know, the lion maybe helping somebody else out. Um, <laughs> but you were, you know, that was a good assumption to make uh, to uh, survive. But you're exactly right. So what if uh, we had a situation here where somebody deep faked my audio and put it out there uh, and yep. me saying something totally inappropriate, um, even if that was proven to not be true, I would be known as, oh, he was the professor. There was that video about him saying that thing, you know, and there would always be this stigma uh, attached to it. And uh, so I think you're right. It's, it's uh, can be used in some very, very bad ways. And we got to get out ahead of it because this technology develops so rapidly and things move so yeah. fast. Uh, it, your listeners, if they haven't seen it already, should uh, Google deep fake Tom Cruise. And you can see oh, these that's deep... Oh, that was great. <laughs> yeah. But that was like one guy with a computer, okay, uh, in 24 yeah. hours, okay? If yep. you look at deep fake um, Barack Obama, there's one from about three and a half years ago that took like 30 people in like a month of, you know, <laughs> the computer crunching way on that. And it's really bad. 
by comparison. And so now you're getting to something where I don't really need to even be that much of a programmer, right? To be able to create these deep fakes. Um, That's the thing. And so I think it's uh, um, something that is just getting out there. I think that we need to educate those people in our families um, Mm -hmm. about these types of calls. Because my mom gets these dear grandma calls all the time where they know that she's an elderly person living alone and just get these calls. And it's like, Oh, grandma, you know, I'm, I'm in uh, Mexico and I'm been arrested and, you know, can, can you talk to these people? And so make sure you educate your family. I mean, as we're gathering for the holidays, that would be a wonderful gift to give them for the new year is let's have a, let's have a keyword that we can say if we really are in trouble, you know, so it's, Paper balloon, paper balloon. Okay, everybody remembers paper balloon? Okay, we're going to remember that. And that uh, if you actually are in trouble, you're going to say paper balloon. Um, You know, uh, go ahead. uh, That's so interesting, you know, and and I talked to my father about deep faking about a year and a half ago now, and he's one of the first people I think of, you know, because he's the worst with like the phishing scams, right? The email from the Nigerian guy who needs a hundred thousand dollars worth giving away a million dollars. Right. He's he, he, my dad's about to be seven. He falls for a lot of stuff, you right. know? And so he's somebody I, I worry about. Um, and these secret words are something that came to my mind too. I can only imagine what others are going to think of, or, you know, I mean, have you thought about that yourself or do, can you think of solutions? Is secret words kind of our only thing we've got right now going for us? Kind well, of identify? yeah. So the F, uh, FCC has been working on a proposal for some time to actually use public-private key encryption uh, to authenticate phone calls. And so it's the same technology that we use for blockchain and cryptocurrency in our wallets, um, where we have a private key and a public key. And so basically, when you would make a phone call, you would sign that dial string, if you will, in a way uh, that the network could verify that that's coming from Michael, okay? That that is, yeah. in fact, from Michael's phone, and it's not being spoofed by some guy in Kazakhstan. And that way, when it comes to my phone, I my phone can also verify, okay, this is from Michael. Um, this is an actual person. And so uh, we really need to have that technology accelerate greatly. That's been another consideration for... Oh boy, like three or four years now, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's time we roll that out because what the problem is is that you know the FBI can't investigate stuff that's you know less than ten yeah. million dollars. Okay, they yeah. they have this huge threshold for money. Well, there's probably ten million dollars being sucked out of my state of Missouri, uh, but it's you know a thousand dollars from this grandma, five hundred dollars from this grandma, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know. Uh, thousand dollars from uncle scott and uh all these other folks and it accumulates but um it's just uh, such a low crime each one of those that the fbi can't really be on it and so i think um you know we really got to look at this stuff as to how do we modernize and we're talking a lot about a lot about infrastructure how do we modernize our infrastructure and, uh, you know, I don't even answer the phone anymore unless it's somebody I'm expecting a call from because it's just so bad, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the phones have become almost useless um, in some yeah. ways. So. Absolutely. 
Now, how do you think we could keep them spying? Because, I mean, you have keys like these that could tie to phones, IP addresses, or serial numbers. But then we all sell phones and trade them and, you know, refurbish them all the time. Um, you know, that would probably cause our identity to be on the blockchain or, you know, uh, that could be a solution. But do you see privacy kind of becoming a bigger issue, too, as we experiment to kind of get these things going? Um. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's an interesting concern. I would say on the public phone network, there isn't a lot of privacy already. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we know uh, that from uh, <clears throat> what uh, Snowden, Snowden yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, um, if you're playing by the rules on the phone network, um, uh, it's kind of like going to a bank. It's a know your customer type of situation. They're, they're going to know uh, who has that phone, right? Um, so I think uh, now if you want to use other means of communication, um, some sort of um, telegram or something like that, well, that's, uh, that's another conversation. But I think at least at the public uh, telephone network, we really have never had that anonymity. We may have felt like we did, uh, but it wasn't really there. And so I think that um, we certainly could add something like that to the uh, public uh, telephone network. Uh, yeah, but still have other alternatives for people to make secure communications. Now, when it comes to the metaverse, I wanted to circle back and ask a uh, quick question on it or a prediction. See if I get one out of you here. How long do you think before you know everybody is inside of these virtual worlds, like Matrix style, where they're spending a majority of their time in there, maybe earning income in the metaverse, uh, and you know really the matrix right how long do you think before we go that way and do you think we'll go that way at all for people um, plugging in you know full-time yeah i think what we have to have is we have to have some sort of standard interoperability so the really nice thing about the web is it's got html and http and these protocols that allow me to connect to your website and i don't care whether uh it is on um hosted on a certain ISP or a certain type of computer or whatever, it's agnostic in that regard. And yes. I think what we have to have is kind of a, a layer of protocols that are common across all of these metaverses. And so that I can jump onto your metaverse server and then jump to somebody else's. And so until we see that, I think we're going to see this kind of bifurcation or this balkanization of the metaverse. So it's kind of like uh, what we have with universal messaging apps like Slack and, um, oh, God okay. forbid, if you have to use Microsoft Teams, it's awful. Uh, but um, that's what we have at the university. Uh, but, of course, my students and I like to use Discord. So that's our yeah, uh, favorite absolutely. app. Uh, but uh, you see all these neat things you can do inside of it, right? So in Discord, you can do all sorts of cool stuff. And Slack's pretty darn cool, too. Uh, I like it. That's where I started. And, um, uh, but I can't really Slack you from Discord. Or at yeah. least if I do, it's through many different API calls and stuff like that that might break. Um, so I lose features. I don't see presence information. I don't see if you're online or stuff like that. So um, that's what we need is we need this kind of uh, interoperability layer like we have with the web 
to come into the metaverse to make it really useful. Otherwise, we're just kind of in our different uh, apps and it'll be cool. And, you know, there's people that will tell you that they live in Slack, right? So they live in Slack because they work there. Everything that they do interoperates with that. And maybe I'll work in the Salesforce, Salesforce metaverse, right? So I'll work in that one. Um, and uh, that will be great for what I do but uh, it's not going to be interoperable with the Microsoft metaverse. So, which sounds horrible to me, Microsoft metaverse. (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, (laughs) I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Uh, Now, are you you a uh, space guy at all? Are you really into space? Uh, Well, I certainly follow, um, you know, what goes on with SpaceX and what's been going on with Starlink and, and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the uh, different delivery of uh, Internet via these low Earth orbiting satellites, which I think has just enormous potential to reach places where it's pretty expensive. The uh, rate of connectivity uh, Mm -hmm. for new people to the Internet has slowed down. Well, the reason for that is because all the easily connected areas have been easily connected. Uh, And now you're the, you know, haul the uh, line down the uh, rural road in Florida for 30 miles to connect Farmer Joe. And so um, I think this can circumvent that. Um, It has, even before the pandemic, the... um, I think the numbers were that uh, bringing broadband to an area increased the uh, GDP of that area by like 2%. So if you think about undeveloped uh, countries, that would be a huge boon to them coming out of uh, the pandemic. If their population have access to e-commerce and to um, banking and to all sorts of things that the internet provides. So anyway, that's probably not what you were asking about, but I, uh, um, uh, there's uh, lots of things going on. Yeah, I, re- I was just thinking the other day, my friend Chris and I used to watch all the uh, SpaceX landings. Remember when they blew up all the time? Like oh, they, yeah. <laughs> so they always blew up on the barge. And I remember we were sitting in a coffee shop the first time that uh, it actually landed correctly. I think that was on uh, on land. And we both stood up with our arms up in the air in the middle of the coffee shop. And everybody was wondering what the hell we were doing. <laughs> so. You know, it's really been amazing to see what Elon has managed to accomplish with uh, SpaceX and, you know, of course, uh, reusable rockets, right, and what he's done to the field. I didn't think that that was happening anytime soon. Um, What do you think about the future of our species, you know, and us becoming multi-planetary and his achievements? I mean, what do you think about all that? Oh, I think it's pretty amazing. I'm not sure we want to go to Mars because it's a pretty dangerous (laughs) place. Uh, I think some of the ideas about uh, capturing the asteroid and uh, being able to dig into it and kind of make it our own little uh, uh, spacecraft, if you will, those are pretty uh, interesting ideas. And I think that might be a better way to go in some ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, I'm excited about it. And um, I think it's uh, fascinating. It's fascinating to see what NASA is doing with uh, these rovers on Mars, they got one that has a little yes. drone that flies around and stuff like that. Yep. And um, the James Webb Space Telescope will be launching maybe Christmas Eve. Um, yep. One of my former students, uh, Michaela Sosby, is uh, working on the uh, big media team that is uh, dealing with that. So we're really proud of her. Um, She is a part of the social media and manages a bunch of people that are, um, you know, interacting and getting the scientists to talk with the 
the press and all that. So um, I have a personal connection to that and I'm super excited to see it launch and, and be deployed. So, yeah, there's just so much uh, going on. This is a fantastic time to be alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now what do you think of the whole multiplanetary species? Do you think it happens in your lifetime or even my lifetime? Um, I think we go to the moon. I think we go to the moon. Um, I think we have a stable colony on the moon in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was just telling some friends today that I would, uh, you know, kind of like to make it to uh, 2061 because that will be the next time Halley's Comet returns. And I saw it in 86. And um, Uh, I think I'll be 93 then. So I got another 40 years uh to go. But um, I think we'll see humans living off the the planet in a big way, a way that would be sustainable. I don't know if it'll be on Mars. Um, uh, Like I said, Mars has a lot of uh, issues, but uh, I think it'll be somewhere. Now, obviously, if you could manage to make it up there, you might age quite a bit slower, huh? (laughs) I don't know. Or or perhaps a lot faster, right? Or Um, a lot faster, absolutely. So uh, the environment we built. Yeah, I think... uh, I think my uh, time has passed for that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm looking forward uh, to see what the next generation will do. Awesome. And so tell me about your uh, business incubator that you've managed to form down there at Mizzou. So we actually have a couple of really cool um, things going on. Columbia, Missouri is like a great place for entrepreneurship. Uh, Zapier, which some of you uh, I'm sure know about in your audience. They started here at our startup weekend. And they're now a multi-billion dollar company. Beyond Meat started up here. Um, wow. equi- huh. Equipment Share started up here. Um, there's just a whole host of businesses that have started up here. Um, and uh, we have a student entrepreneurship program. So we've narrowed it down to 10 student entrepreneurs from all over, not just in the business school, but all over the university that are competing for funds uh, for their small business. So uh, it will go into their LLC and they'll just get this deposit uh, from the university uh, if they have a really good idea. And so we're trying to help those students get started. We also have the education department here has a full-time business incubator just for educational ideas. So all these things we were kind of wrapping on at the beginning of this uh, podcast and talking about the ways that education needs to change. If I can develop some new tool to make that happen, then um, they will help me commercialize that. They will help me test it, test out with customers, you know, pivot to better ideas, and then finally bring it to market. So we've got both of those things going on. And then we also have uh, in town, we have a group called Ready that does, um, they're getting ready to do a couple startup weekends. They do a game jam where people lock themselves in these uh, offices downtown and they uh, make games. So these are sometimes board games or video games, but some of them have started actual successful companies. So it's really a great place to uh, um, start a business. And I would say that across the board, this is the time to start a business. Lots of, lots of chaos going on, lots of opportunity. There's no better time to start a business. And I try to drum this into my students' heads that um, you know, now is the time to get going with your idea. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
And then now kind of to wrap things up, I, I wanted to hear a little bit about your books. Uh, you want to tell the audience about some of the uh, books you have out there and some of the things you published? And I really liked your blog as well. Definitely mention and uh, give some details about that. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, the thing I've been working on a lot lately is, is doing more writing. And I share a lot of things through a newsletter called The Free Range Technologist. And you can find that at just FRT. So free range technologist, FRT.news. And uh, that should take you to the um, site. It's a Substack newsletter. You can also just search for free range technologies and you'll find it. It's really not too much as far as anything commercial, but it's like here I read this great book about Tesla Motors called Power Play. And uh, here's what I think of it. Here's the pluses and minuses. Uh, here's some new program that I found that makes me more productive. And so here's how I'm using it. Uh, that yep. kind of stuff. And then I've written a couple books in the past. Um, uh, Virtual Classrooms was one that I uh, co-authored, uh, as well as uh, some project management textbooks. But I'm working on one about the borders of the Internet and this idea that uh, are we moving toward a borderless Internet uh, with um, both these Starlink satellites as well as you know, cryptocurrency and, and these DAOs. Are we moving to a post-border internet? Um, so I'm not sure I have my ideas uh, all together on that. But uh, <laughs> if any of your listeners have any great resources, please send them my way and I'll read them and, and try to uh, see if I can further my thoughts. But um, my free range technologist newsletter is out there and that's uh, probably the best uh, place to uh, find out what I'm doing and what's the latest and greatest. I often give a lot of workshops uh, for free. So um, there may be something of interest there as well. Hmm. Now you want to uh, talk about that a little bit really quick here, the balkanization of cybersecurity. Um, kind of the open border. Yeah. So oh, um, okay. yeah, cyberspace. So you talk about, um, uh, we kind of think about the internet as being open all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you're in certain countries, it may not be, and it may not be open all the time. So if you live in, live in India, if there's a contentious election, they may shut down access to social media. They may set, mm -hmm. shut down access to certain uh, types of data. And so it's really about how um, your country thinks about the internet, how it incentivizes ISPs or whether it is the ISP and how much control it exerts over that influences a lot of what you get out of the internet and how you experience it. And so that's another uh, very interesting thing about these um, internet delivered by satellite because they cross borders, right? So uh, uh, Russia has already said that they will go after people that have Starlink um, uplinks because they don't want people accessing an unfettered internet uh, they don't want them to see everything that's out there so i just think there's a lot of things in play right now and there's a lot of um, ways that uh, these authoritarian governments may try to uh, exert control uh, over their populations but i'm also optimistic on the side like the uh, dows where people are coming together and figuring out how they want to govern things outside of current laws of their country. So being able to have these smart contracts that um, build in the ideals of the community that's involved in this DAO. And so I think that's um, pretty fascinating ideas there. And, and I think 
kind of powerful. I think once you once you're involved in it, um, you're not going to uh, uh, turn back in some ways. That's interesting. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more about that. Uh, well, Scott, that's been you uh, enjoyed yourself on here. I'm I'm very glad and very grateful you were able to make it. I've been dying to talk to you. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a joy, and um, uh, maybe in a year we'll do it again, and, and uh, everything will have changed or nothing will have changed. We'll see. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, do you want to shout out your uh, blog website name one more time and maybe uh, something for the audience to go check out? Yeah, so it's uh, Free Range Technologist FRT. Uh, dot news and I have something uh, as well called the blockchain game if you uh, shoot me an email um, I'll send the email so you can put it in the show notes probably my shortest one is jsc like juliet sierra charlie at hey hey dot com um, and if you want to shoot, if your listeners want to shoot me an email, I'll send you something called the blockchain game which is a way that you can explain blockchain to your grandma Oh, awesome. Okay, definitely. definitely. I'll, I'll make sure I post that as well. Well, thank you again, Scott. Uh, thank you again, audience. I hope you guys uh, enjoy this conversation. And again, you guys know you can catch me every Thursday on every platform. Uh, I look forward to uh, talking to you guys again next week. And uh, thank you again, Scott. Okay, thanks so much. <laughs>